Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The contents of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward. But we hope that listeners will sit with their discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, their likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversation to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if need be, turn off the podcast. Consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Welcome back to Good Sex at NYU. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Alexander Pines, the Assistant Director of Global Diversity Education and Training. We talk about the expectations of reading our partner's mind instead of communicating our wants and needs, as well as how Alexander learned to advocate for himself in a healthcare setting. If you haven't heard the first part of our interview, then we encourage you to go back and listen as we covered many things, including the difference in setting boundaries at work and in our personal life. How has your understanding of pleasure evolved over time? And have you discovered like any new ways to prioritize and explore pleasure in your life? Yeah, so I I was on a focus group recently, about last year, talking about um, changes to NYU's healthcare plan. This is related, mm. I promise I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> um, and the kind of question we were asked are like, what changes can be made to like the sort of gender affirming care part of the healthcare plan? And I had, I d- didn't have top surgery until last year. I delayed it for many, many years. And I, I mean, sidebar one, after having that, just simply not being in pain every day was, mm-hmm. I think, and you know, we talk about like gender affirming care. Yes, there's the like dysphoria side of it and like what it can mean to sort of no longer have a part of yourself that, you know, causes you that sort of psychic turmoil. You know, that's I'm not discounting that. But I think what sometimes people don't realize is that wearing a binder is physically very painful. Um, I was in pain every single day of my life for close to 10 years. And so just being free of that was hugely like that, that, you know, my world opened up like, mm-hmm. you know, it was no longer, you know, it wasn't like I'd get home and take the binder off and now I'm done for the day. It was like, oh, yeah, I can pop across the store, you know, to buy ice cream again. These sort of boring things that really weren't part of my life until after I had the procedure. And so because I'd been so focused on on just whenever I looked at a health insurance plan, does it cover hormone replacement therapy and does it cover top surgery? Those are the only two things I ever cared about. And I'm mm-hmm. sitting in this focus group and I'm sort of thinking like, yeah, I'm mean, got a great plan. You know, I pay for my top surgery, they pay for my hormones. It's not terrible. Like some one grad program I almost went to, they would have paid for hormones, but you had to have the nurse inject your hormones for you every oh. other week. So I was and like, and then that costs. 
yeah. to go there mm. for the injections. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to like, one, I've been doing this myself for three years at that point. I was like, I'm not going to, I've been doing it for 10 years now. I'm not going to tether myself to a nurse. I mean, mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, got a great plan. This is wonderful. And I'm like listening to other people and they're asking for this, they're asking for that, they're asking for this. And it had just, I had never given myself permission mm. to want those things. Mm-hmm. And so that really struck me of just how, how small I'd let my desire become and just, you know, the sort of bare minimum. And I was sitting there, I was like, I am so grateful for this bare minimum. <laughs> mm. And so now like, I saw that now that the plan covers binders and I was like, where was this? <laughs> like, <laughs> I could have owned more than one binder at a time. That would have been, you know, it weren't that expensive. But when I was 19 years old, living on $3,000 of federal loans a semester, right. like that 30 bucks for a binder was food for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like imagining if that had been covered by insurance, imagining all these other things that are now covered. I think a lot of my life since, you know, the last few years and actually attaining a little bit of financial security for the first time in a long time has been allowing myself to like not settle. And so, you know, to let myself want more than just like this tiny little thing I have told myself I'm allowed to want, mm. mm-hmm. which is real depressing. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're it's a journey. We're all on a journey. But I think really important for others to like take from that, right, is like you should demand more. Yeah. You know? Have a voice. Mm-hmm. It's, your voice is you know, powerful and you shouldn't just settle for the bare minimum yeah mm-hmm. and again i can tell my students this yeah. all day long yeah. sometimes you have to learn it <laughs> doing yeah. it myself it's a different story yeah yeah do you feel comfortable sharing why you waited that that long oh yeah absolutely there were, there were a few reasons first was i was not super financially secure growing up uh, my family was you know like comfortable enough but i like didn't really understand like what rich people was until college and then i was like looking around i'm from michigan right it's cold in michigan we all need a coat i'd never seen a canada goose coat yeah and then i moved to new york city and i google a canada goose coat and i say oh that's like thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. and so you know that kind of reframed how i saw my relationship to money and so in college it was simply a matter of like the only t- like time I could take off was over the summer and I had to work over the summer mm-hmm. and I couldn't, the kinds of jobs that I had were not the kinds where I could just be out of action for four to six weeks. So there was that kind of, that was problem number one. Problem number two is when I finally left college and had a little bit more time that I could have maybe been flexible and was in graduate school, I was in Iowa and I was like, who is going to take care of me? Because mm-hmm. I love my roommates. They were not going to be able to take mm-hmm. care of me. Like these were people who I had to like carry them, you know, out of the bar and, you know, it was a writer town. It was in the middle of nowhere. All you had to do, like all there was to do really was like drink beer and complain about each other's writing. Um, and so I was like, okay, I don't have anyone to take care of me and I also still don't have any money because I think I was making like 18 grand a year which Mm -hmm. was nothing and so the other part of it I think was I I'd felt a lot of pressure to get top surgery very early like if you had told me at 19 when I first started hormone therapy that it would take me almost a decade to have top surgery I would have been overcome I would have been just so despondent and miserable because it feels very urgent and I think in the trans community and this is something that isn't maybe necessarily talked about as much is there is this real pressure I think to conform Mm -hmm. to especially if you're a trans man especially if you're a white trans man um, to very like you have to cut your hair short you have to like act like a man there are like trans people who will yell at other trans people for being trans the wrong way Mm -hmm. you know just like every community there are the terrible people in it and so 
within these communities, I think there is this real emphasis on physical transition, and that's what proves that you're really trans. Mm. Um, and there's a whole so there's a group of people they call them the sort of pejorative term is true scum. The longer term is transmedicalism. That basically mm. says being trans is a medical diagnosis, and the cure to it is you know hormone therapy and gender affirming surgery. I don't subscribe to this belief, mm -hmm. um, but there's that pressure. And so what that pressure does, I think, is it what it tells young trans people, especially who don't have access to surgery, who don't have access to hormone therapy is, you know, you are the wrong kind of trans unless you have this. And also these things will solve all of your problems mm -hmm. with your body. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had a lot of issues with my body that had absolutely nothing to do with the need for this surgery. And I wanted to be in a place where I was a little bit more mature to not expect that this procedure would fix everything mm. um, and to really understand the procedure for what it was, which was, this is going to mean I'm not going to have to wear a binder. It's what's going to solve that problem. That's a huge problem. I mean, not having bacne. Oh, my God. What a revelation. Because <laughs> you know, you're not wearing a tight spandex tube every day. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's going to solve that problem. It's going to solve this problem. But it's not going to solve these other problems. And I need to be able to, if not have those resolved, at least know that they're there and know what I need to do about mm. them when it comes to body image. So that was the sort of like other reason. And then, of course, unfortunately, there are not that many surgeons who I would say are excellent at, mm. at gender affirming surgeries. I think there are a lot of surgeons who will perform it, yeah. but they don't, I think, take the time and care to, to really learn about the community. And I think they're seeing it as kind of a cash opportunity. And so for the ones who are really good, there's a wait list. Mm. Um, I yeah. called oh, June 2020. I got my intake in August of 2021. Wow. Mm. And then the surgery she got me in for first available, which was March, the following March. Wow. So almost two years mm -hmm. um, from the initial phone call. And I probably could have like skipped the line because I knew people, but I was like, no, it's going to take. Also, like I had to like find a therapist to write me a letter, which I thought was yeah. stupid as hell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I found the that's Gallup. Not, that's not that's not um, a requirement in NYU's policy. You need one oh. letter, but it could be either medical or from a counselor, a therapist. That's one for or the employees. Other. Or for no, students. for students. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I don't know for, about the employees. Yeah, yeah. For employees, you do. You still need to have. I had one for my endocrinologist and then one from this therapist. And I was like, this is so dumb. Mm -hmm. Like, I could go get triple Ds, which would be way more life changing <laughs> for nothing. I could yeah. go get a face tattoo for nothing. Also, mm -hmm. would be way more life changing. Mm -hmm. um, but for this, I have to have a therapist. But the Gallup Project, G A L U P, it's mm -hmm. uh, maybe there are two L's. Um, they do pro bono gender affirming letters. Mm -hmm. And that was how I was able to find someone. But cool. that took like months. And mm -hmm. so that was the other reason, just the sort of logistics. Yeah. And yeah. then, yeah, saving the money. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm grateful that I was able to pay for it myself. Um, I was mostly covered by insurance and it hit my out of pocket for yes, insurance. So everything rest, else is free. Yeah. So the rest of the year I was like, ooh, I'm going to go to this doctor. I'm going to go to this doctor. <laughs> I got free stuff coming. I'm going to do this test. Yeah. But like a lot of trans people have to crowdfund. Some of the better doctors don't take insurance, which is mm -hmm. why I would never go to them. Because I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not going to spend 15 grand on this yeah. um yes there's all of that and then there's also the weird politics of like you know like the aesthetics of it and and the sort of question of like it is plastic surgery and like that kind of weird thing of like mm -hmm. is i think this is more of a conversation in, in in trans feminine spaces and especially when we think about like facial feminization surgery and other things like that where it's like i have been trained to believe this is a life and death life-saving procedure and in some ways it is and for some trans people it is but also like why am i as a trans person not allowed to like want to be beautiful and like want to yeah. have like yeah. the best like i used to joke i was like i'm spending this kind of money i want designer titties <laughs> like i want to go to the best of the best i did dr blue von langner in new uh -huh. york city <laughs> she was great she did cello man um you know like but like that weird feeling of like am i being frivolous like that was something mm -hmm. else i kind of had to combat and i think a lot of trans people there is that weird line of like like, 
shouldn't we be allowed to like want to be beautiful too and have that not set us back in terms of our Mm -hmm. civil rights, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, thank you, United States of America for for forgiving all of us that horrible mind situation (laughs) to be in. I'm glad that you got in. And I also hear that I mean, we we have other doctors now that we refer our students to, but it is it's, it is all of them have long wait lists and yeah, and it's like, unfortunate. There are other doctors. I'm not saying that the other doctors with short wait lists are bad by any means. I haven't done my research, but like I do think it's undeniable that certain doctors really care and mm-hmm. really understand their community. Like the doctor I went to only works with trans people, mm-hmm. and then there are doctors who I think yeah see it as like another way to make money and like you know yeah yeah. Well, I also hear you like thinking about all of the different complications that come up just in life along the way, like really sort of thinking about, oh, if you come from a family who doesn't have a ton to spend that much money, like I really, that really resonated with me. Just like, yeah, like I sometimes forget that I'm financially stable. You're like, oh, I can spend the money on these things that are, you know, going to benefit me and I'm going to get pleasure out of. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it always felt like that too grand should like when I was younger, it was like, well, this has to go to my education. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had a student contribution as part of my financial aid package. And while I had a very generous financial aid package, paid all of my tuition, some of my room and board, you know, any amount of money, like my parents were able to contribute to the rest of my room and board through like, they had like a 529, but they mm-hmm. couldn't give me that money. So if I wanted money for books, if I wanted money for travel or for anything that wasn't from a dining hall, it was like, if I don't spend my money that I've earned over the summer on that, that's more loans I'm taking out. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, yes, of course, my education needs to come first, even though, again, being physically in pain all day mm-hmm. makes it hard to sit in a lecture hall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I also appreciate that you highlighted that, you know, trans care is individualized. And I think that we're trying mm-hmm. to push that a lot more here at, at NYU and, and saying that, like, Everybody has different needs. Some people want surgery. Some people want hormones. Some people want facial feminization surgery. Some people want hair removal. Other places like, but it's not the same for everybody. Absolutely. And so somebody, you could have five trans men or five trans women that are have all different kinds of treatment plans. And and I think that that should be the norm. And people should mm-hmm. not be telling them. Well, it's also wrong. really kind of shocking that it's not already because I feel like everything else is like I walk into and that's my privilege. I walk into you know, a doctor's office, I would hope that I get the individual care and not just like, oh, you have this, you know, thing, then everyone's going to be the same, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like I, I have some dermatology issues that were coming up and I'm really frustrated because I'm like, my doctor's just kind of giving me like the standard stuff. And I'm like, something's not working. Yeah. Like the standard treatment's not working yeah. for me. Like, I feel like you're not giving me the individualized care. You're just sending me new prescriptions Mm -hmm. and just throwing a new prescription at it. I feel like see me as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, this was in grad school, but I was asked to be on this like trans health panel, which was wild because I was there to just give like a writing workshop. Like it was like a cute little like queer writing workshop, whatever. And then they like, like somebody dropped out of this panel and they were like, well, otherwise, if we don't do it, there won't be any trans people on this panel. And I was like. So otherwise, my only qualification is just having a body, <laughs> being a trans person. They were sort of like, well, yeah. And I was like, I mean, yeah, there should be a trans person on this panel. So I'm sitting there and there's this like cis guy doctor, super well-meaning. This is also in Iowa. So like the sort of political context is a little bit different there, um, even though it was prior to all of these laws. And I remember a bunch of teenagers. It was like 14 to 16 year olds. Mm. And some students are talking, you know, this is you can't really access um, gender affirming care when you're that age in most of the country. And so they're talking about like maybe getting on hormones, stuff like that. And this doctor's like, yeah, we'll transition all of you. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like, it's also okay. Like, I actually had to, I had to say it. I was like, 
it's okay if you need to wait. And I'm glad that I waited to have top surgery. It was also because, you know, it wasn't just necessarily my chest I had dysphoria about, but there are other parts of my body that the binder helped me feel better about. Mm -hmm. And like having top surgery, like an adjustment after top surgery was dealing with those parts of my body that like I no longer wear a binder to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I, I have the emotional maturity to do that now at almost 30. Would I have had it at 15? No. <laughs> you know, and so being able to kind of be like, again, a boring adult and just say like, hey, I've lived through this and it's okay to wait or it's okay to like mm -hmm. do this. Like don't feel like, you know, because yeah, there's this one size fits all. Yeah. You know, I don't want you to ever feel like you have to go to a doctor and the doctor says, so we're going to follow the transition plan and you get, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. that's really not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dermatology okay. also. Sorry. Like, no, you would I'm think, like a you would think with reaction. dermatology in particular, since mm -hmm. everybody has a different skin type yeah. that they would know. My doctor listens to this. <laughs> uh, we're going to transition to a little bit of a different topic now, but um, what does a healthy relationship mean to you and how, how did you discover this on your own? Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely, I think communication is the sort of the cornerstone of it. And so not just the presence of communication, but also really feeling like you were able to communicate. That I think is a sign of a, of a healthy yeah. relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've been in relationships or friendships where I feel like if I speak up, the relationship or friendship will end. Mm -hmm. And that I think, you know, red flags we ignored, right? Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think, you know, being with someone who sees you the way like the best version of yourself, like, not necessarily like somebody who like doesn't see your flaws, but who celebrates you for like the weird things about you, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Or like, you know, who, who can kind of be there with you for that, like person you want to become or that person you're becoming as opposed to people. Cause I think there are some people um, who just want to tear each other down mm -hmm. and who are just like really negative. So I think, you know, it's not to say that you have to like, again, be with somebody who's going to like delusionally, you know, like, be right. like, yeah, you're, you know, five foot eight, you can play in the NPA, like nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like being with someone who's really excited for the things that excite you about yourself, mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Unfortunately, it was a lot of trial and error, though. <laughs> like, it yeah. wasn't like I was able to like, oh, yeah, this is how it is. I had to go through some not great experiences mm -hmm. to get there. I think as a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, I think that's how we test our boundaries. We figure out like, you know, really important, valuable things sometimes when we fail and when we fall flat. I think so many of our students are so afraid to fail or so afraid mm -hmm. to like, yeah. you know, do anything that's going to be perceived as a failure. And it's like, oh, I wish I could just tell you, you know, shake you. You're going to learn so much. I don't yeah. want you to like fail and never get up but i'm like you you fail you look back you're like ah yeah. i learned so much from that and and also how we see relationships that end as like these colossal oh, yeah. failures yeah. and i just think that's really not true such mm -hmm. a negative social norm that we like have like oh if we get a divorce or oh if we like end a relationship then i'm a failure mm -hmm. right and that's not true like hopefully you've learned something from that hopefully you've gained something positive and you can move forward mm -hmm. right and take the positive into a new relationship because we always think oh i have this baggage yeah you know and it's like well think of it as positive baggage it's mm -hmm. a louis vuitton bag that you're taking, <laughs> right? yeah yeah i mean like my partner and i are, are in you know conversation about um getting married soon unfortunately part of it is brought on by like dumb bureaucracy it turns mm -hmm. out if i put her on my insurance as a domestic partner i get taxed on the value of the insurance that nyu pays but not if you're married. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, I, I am not like the, the notion <laughs> of marriage is something I'm a little lukewarm on. Mm -hmm. um, but like the legal benefits are undeniable. And of course, uh, it's not the commitment that I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. um, but like that was a conversation we were having. And she was like, well, I think we should probably get a prenup 
because we want to assume that like, yep, we're going to try and keep choosing each other. Mm -hmm. But if things don't work out that way, let's, while we love and care about each other, establish how this relationship may, you know, no longer continue in Mm -hmm. this way Mm -hmm. while we still feel this way about each other. And I think that's a great idea. It's very mature. Well, just a good perspective. I think we're always talking about wanting to think about definitions and have conversations in advance before you have them, just like we were talking about before conflict, you know, first, second date, like, let's talk about how you manage conflict because it's going to happen. Let's talk about what kind of sex you want to have because hopefully it'll happen. Maybe not, (laughs) but like, I want to make sure we're a good fit before we get into that bedroom or that you know, public bathroom, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever, wherever, whatever, whatever, yeah, park bench, wherever, <laughs> wherever, wherever floats your boat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, to talk about like a prenup, Hey, like, let's hope this is going to work out, but mm-hmm. like, let's also be realistic that, yeah. you know, half, half of marriages, marriages. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and in divorce. So like, yeah. let's just be realistic. And I love that you're doing it while you love and care someone for someone. Yeah. I think, you know, I also, we had just watched like marriage story. Okay. So that was a good, it was like, okay, Adam driver punching a wall. Let's not, I don't ever want to like see myself yeah. in that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Are there any cultural like or religious beliefs that have influenced your views on sex and relationships? And, you know, how do you navigate that tension that might arise? Yeah. So I, again, I think, as I said earlier, I did not grow up terribly religious. Um, my mom had me baptized and I kind of asked her about it later. And she was like, oh, just in case. Like that was the like, <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> um, I will say something with respect to religion, because I didn't grow up religious, I as a queer person had a lot of, I think, feelings of anger toward like the religious community. Mm-hmm. And so something I had to kind of unlearn was meeting, you know, other people who were queer, who had identities that I shared, who who did have like faith or spirituality and kind of pushing past or being able to see that outside of my kind of criticism of the church or of kind of organized religion and the way that I think it does enact sort of unhealthy things and really being able to like like not be a little asshole, frankly, which is what I was like my first partner in college, they had grown up in this really affirming, nurturing religious environment. And while they also shared my criticisms of organized religion and of the church, you know, me being a little snot about their (laughs) religious background was not a good thing for our relationship. And so that was something I've had to kind of learn and be able to like, see faith and see spirituality in that more kind of nuanced way. I think some of where I what I internalized when I was younger were sort of like Midwestern puritanical mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Michigan. It's as much as we were always screaming at each other, there's also a lot that's unsaid and very passive and mm-hmm. expecting other people to pick up on those cues, especially like, you know, I my parents would scream at each other, but I don't think they necessarily like would talk about certain things because they maybe expected like you know, oh, well, I did this thing. How did you not know that that meant? Even though if this thing was like a certain way of polishing my glasses or like, mm. <laughs> you know, to, to, to give an example of the sort of passivity, like if my mom and I'm home rarely, but if I'm home and I want to go out and see a friend and my mom is mad about that, she won't like give me an earful like you would expect, like, not like you would expect, but like a lot of moms would. She'll just say, oh, <laughs> and within that O contains, you know, years of disappointment and everything I've ever done wrong. I'm know? having an activation right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm from Kansas. Yeah, I right. Get you. <laughs> right. And so for me, I have I think those are things that I unconsciously replicate in my relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will like do or say something and expect my partner to know exactly what I mean. And she's like, I am from the Bay. I am very like, <laughs> she's like, I will tell you exactly what I want and don't want. And I don't understand. Like, you know, what are you doing? I don't know what this means. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was something I really had to like, oh, no, you do have to like you can't just count on this like shared cultural understanding mm-hmm. or this shared. Yeah. Sort of shorthand. 
because it's not going to get you very far. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and Michigan is very like Dutch reformed. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of yeah, Calvin College, yes, Hope College, exactly. Yeah, especially and, my and part so, of the state. Yeah, and so those things, even if you weren't actively going to a, a church or anything like that, it's kind of seeped in the whole mm-hmm. community and yeah. how education is taught, sex ed programs, thing messages that you're getting, and so that that probably got in somewhere, even if oh, you abs- weren't yeah. getting it from home or intentionally going places to get that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in high school, I was I rereading my old, my mother decided she was sick of my stuff being all over the house, which is fair. I did move out, <laughs> you know, more than a decade ago, but she was like, you need to get everything out. And I was like, okay, fair. She's like, I'm, I'm making this into a guest room. It's going to be cute. And I was like, fine. So I'm like <laughs> going through my old journals and I, I was really angry in high school because even though, again, my mom isn't terribly religious, she was like, afraid for me to be this like out queer kid and so there were lots of little things that she would do and say to make me like you know my high school girlfriend was my friend you know like Mm -hmm. those sorts of things i think a lot of queer people can relate to to the experience of being someone's friend especially around family and so yeah absolutely and i i think i i didn't again i didn't feel shame about myself but i did feel anger at everyone else Mm -hmm. and that was something else that was kind of hard to get rid of as Mm -hmm. i as i grew up that those feelings of just you know, being mad at my mom for making me feel that way and being able to kind of like we got into a huge blowout fight in the American Apparel in Ann Arbor <laughs> in 2009 because I wanted one of those stupid legalized gay shirts, which are so tacky. Like it is deeply <laughs> embarrassing that I bought one, but I wanted to buy one. And she was like, I don't think you want to advertise that. And I got so mad. I bought two. <laughs> and I ran out of the store. Yeah. And like she was right to tell me not to buy one because it was a bad shirt and nobody should, you know, wear them. But I just I felt so angry with her. And it took me many, many years to recognize that like she was terrified that I was gonna get bullied and she was doing her best to keep me safe. And I think mm-hmm. the things that she did were not things that were affirming or supportive, but it didn't come from a place of like rejecting me. It came from a place of her seeing the world that she lived in and being afraid for her kid. Mm-hmm. And that was that perspective took me a long time to develop. And it was like years of being very kind of careful about how I talked about my life with my family. And I still am very, so I'm just like, small example. I was just on vacation with them. There were these hilarious stickers. We went to a place called Sleeping Bear Dunes, um, beautiful National Lake Shore. Maybe don't visit because then there are a lot of people there and like, it's best <laughs> that it's, it's not a lot of people. But there's this hilarious sticker. It's got a bunch of bears, like gay men, you know, like bears sleeping mm-hmm. and it's at Sleeping Bear Dunes. And I was like, this is hysterically funny. So I bought the sticker. My mom was like, what's that? Why are there men on the stick? I was like, mom, <laughs> <laughs> straight people, you know, like straight people humor just does not, you know. <laughs> Went over her head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you navigate the intersectionality of your identities within the context of sex and relationships? Yeah, I mean, like, thinking about my own experiences, I am always, I think, very aware that there are things that I don't have access to as a personal experience. And I, I try to be really conscious of that in my um, intimate relationships, but also in my, like, friendships and things like that. Um, trying to have that knowledge of, like, I don't know what XYZ thing is like. Um, And that's information I need to know that I don't know. Mm. Um, I think that's the most, again, I do trainings for a living. So forgive me if I I lapse into training speak. But, (laughs) you know, knowing what you don't know or knowing that you don't know, I think is the best way to avoid um, maybe stumbling into problematic behaviors. And so that's something I try to carry with me and making sure that I'm not presuming or making assumptions um, based on, you know, experiences I can't have. It is weird, though, like, you know, you go from being this like angry, queer, punk woman to being like perceived as a straight cis guy. 
uh, and a straight white cis guy. And so having all of this power and access to power um, that I didn't sort of have any like life experience having until mm -hmm. I was an adult is something that I, I struggle with, con you know, constantly. Right. It's, it's a very weird position to be in. It's like you wake up and you're a boring straight white guy. That's horrifying. <laughs> like, you know, that, that's like really it is kind of scary. And so thinking about how I can, you know, understand that and understand you know, understand this power I have access to and also understanding, too, that I am still a person who is vulnerable and still marginalized in specific ways. And like something, a concept that I'm interested in um, is this idea of like conditional privilege, right? Um, in that I have access to all of this power, but there are certain lines where I don't. Mm -hmm. And so being able to both understand the ways in which I am marginalized, um, but also understand how the way that I am seen and the way that I move through the world does not necessarily square with that marginalization. What is mm -hmm. that sort of specific kind of vulnerability manifest as and how does that you know impact how I see the world? But yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. And especially as a, as a white person who does the work that I do, you know, trying to really be aware of where my personal experience is an asset and also where I, I need to learn more and I need to be intentional about seeking out information I don't have access to. Mm -hmm. um, so something that I, I constantly try to do is, you know, I'll read books about like disability studies or I'll, you know, seek out narratives from people whose experiences I don't share so that when I'm when I'm doing my work or when I'm just like approaching other human beings, I'm not letting the sort of cultural soup shorthand come out. I'm able to kind of substitute that cultural soup, you know, all of those other biases that we swim around in with real concrete things, or I'm at least aware that I need to have that filter mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how often do you talk about sex in general? And then who do you have those conversations with? As a queer person, I feel like it comes up quite a bit. Like all of my friends, I love my friends. They're all in like the cute little polycules and all these other things. So it's like, oh, so-and-so just had a threesome with this person who was kind of famous. And like, you know, there's a lot of that in the group chat. Mm -hmm. Like the queer writing and art community is surprisingly small. And so to be like, oh, so-and-so had an affair with that. You know, so like there's a lot of like that that happens in my day-to-day. -day. Um, or just like, I think the like, the queer media and, and tends to be a little bit more sexually explicit. Like um, I was actually just talking to my colleagues today. There's um, this uh, this is a show on on YouTube, um, Western Queens. It's four of the um, like drag queen like drag race girls. It's Bob, uh, Monet Exchange, Alaska, and Jujube, and they're playing D and D. Um, and there's this like hilarious little bit where like there's a chipmunk who's also a character in the thing. And anyway, he grabs poppers. And like I was just like just, like I was like, using this as an example to describe the humor of this show. <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah, I'll, you know, queers do love talking about sex. But like, you know, so like there's mm -hmm. that. Um, and also with my partner, you know, in like fun ways, but also in more like, you know, we'll we'll, we'll set aside time if we need to to kind of mm -hmm. have those conversations so that we can make sure that we're still on the same page and that we're still, you know doing well in that regard. I think that's huge what you just said. You guys have been together for eight years and you still sit down mm -hmm. and have those conversations. I think that's important you have for to. everybody to know that, yeah, yeah that it's yeah. still important to have those conversations. You can't just have one conversation at the very beginning <laughs> and think that that's going to cover you for yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah, it's like, can you imagine like wanting all of the same things you wanted at 21? <laughs> like my body doesn't move in all of the same <laughs> ways that it moved in when I was 21, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Or like, I didn't have access to like a bed that was larger than a twin XL when yeah. I was 21. Yeah. Like yeah. those, yeah, I think it's super important and important to have those conversations in a deeply unsexy setting, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in a coffee shop or at the uncomfortable chairs at the dinner table because you mm -hmm. can't afford the cute chair, you know, like, because <laughs> like, I think that takes a lot of the pressure off of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in what ways do you prioritize self-care in your sexual and intimate relationships? And, you know, how does that impact your overall well-being? 
Yeah. So I am I'm a fake extrovert. I like to say, like, I am, I think, pretty good at performing a level of extroversion, especially as part of my job. Um, that is, like, I'm, I'm, if you let me to my own devices, I am like a gremlin. I just want to be in the dark with a book watching TV all day. <laughs> I'd be perfectly happy like that. And so for me, because of my work is very, like, I have to be around people all day. I need a lot of alone time. And so that was a kind of boundary I had to really navigate with my partner of being like, mm-hmm. look, I, I don't want to be a monster <laughs> to you. But like, when I get too much... I shut down. Mm -hmm. And so something that a kind of a compromise, because again, we were stuck in a tiny box together for three years during COVID. Mm -hmm. Both of us were working from home. We had to kind of negotiate like, what is, what does that look like? And so sort of, you know, something that she has kind of grown to accept, even though she hates the smell is is the nails. Mm -hmm. I'm doing my nails every week. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't do my nails in the living room. I like go to my desk. I open the window. I've got my little fan. I've got my like dual monitor set up. I've got my increasingly large collection of polishes next to me <laughs> my little swatch wheels and I like that's something that for me is really helpful to just take that time and it's funny because people are always asking like oh you must love doing your partner's nails you must love doing it I don't want to do anybody else's nails <laughs> like I know people are like oh my god you must be so good you can make money no I don't want to do anyone else's nails this is something I do for me it gives me joy I don't want to have yeah. to worry about what color you like or don't like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I want to wear what I want to wear so that I think is, is the main thing that I do for myself and like setting that time aside or being able to kind of communicate like, hey, I need this space or hey, I need to do this or that thing. Um, But I mean, it's tough. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what what y'all are doing in this, this, you know, (laughs) pandemic Lovato as it continues. I love that term. (laughs) But yeah. 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 I play volleyball. That's something Mm -hmm. that like really gives me a lot of community, but also like a physical outlet sometimes. But then I also love to read. I'm also a little bit like introverted, extroverted, kind of walk the line. And I definitely need my alone space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I both identify as extroverts, but we realized during the pandemic, him more so than me, I would still like to get out and see friends. But he was like, I just need you. You're a person. So <laughs> so you fill my extroverted space. And so yeah. I think even like as we transition back into whatever this real world is now these days, I think like we still enjoy just hanging out, the two of us, but yeah. and and it is a lot more effort to get out and go and do things. <laughs> and we're trying, we're trying to be more more intentional about getting out and you know, even if it's just the two of us getting out of the house and going mm-hmm. and doing things. But I really like the outdoors. It sucks that it's so hot in the summer. Yeah. But yeah, walking yeah. was a lot. Like during the pandemic, we walked so much around our neighborhood. We got really into the WNBA this mm-hmm. year. We yeah. went to my first game this past weekend. Oh my god! Wait, was the Liberty who versus? Did you see them here? Yeah, the Storm. Oh, oh, that was a tight game. It was. Too. It should not have been that tight. Ooh, I know. <laughs> yeah, that was. Ooh, I watched that on TV. <laughs> like, I was at the Mercury game two weeks oh, ago. Okay. Um, yeah, like so that that having mm-hmm. that thing, and also it's easy because we live in Brooklyn, two stops away. Mm, nice. And so that that was also like yeah. Being able mm-hmm. to get out of the house mm-hmm, and yeah. like it's also not that expensive, frankly. Oh, like yeah. to go see like a ball game and mm-hmm. it feels like I'm like, ooh, I'm around all these other queer people, but I get to sit in my own little section. I get to yell a lot. You know, <laughs> it could be yeah, that kind of like cathartic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's great. So yeah. we're at our last question. Uh, so what does good sex mean to you? Oh, that is that is a t- I don't. Know. It shouldn't be a tough question, but I do <laughs> feel like it is. I don't know. I think I think it's any any kind of sex that you you learn from. You feel like you're. I don't like to use this word because it's ableist, but like seen, right? Mm. Like really seen. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and it, it does not have to be with a long term partner. You can have a one time hookup where you have mm-hmm. that experience. But I think that for me is the most important thing, where you don't feel like you're performing. Mm-hmm. You know, where you feel like you could just just be, and what that mechanically looks like does not matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's what I would say. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And so 
we have come to the end. We're, we're very grateful that you um, came today and, and shared so much with us and appreciate your, your vulnerability and your ability to share. Are there, I mean, obviously you, you have these workshops through OGI or CMAP? Kind of, the work, kind of I, Frankly, yeah. <laughs> you think I would know which one I take. I sit in CMAP. So you want to come see hi to me at, mm-hmm. at NYU. I'm also a courtesy emails provider. Um, uh, yeah, I physically sit in the CMAP offices. It's Kimmel 806. Um, so the workshops, I think some are like CMAP branded, some are OGI branded. It's all, okay. the education team is, is me and my supervisor. It's, yes. It's, we, we do all of it. So how do people find the workshops? Uh, you can, for the public facing ones, you can just go, if you go into like, NYU learning opportunities or NYU OGI learning opportunities, you'll find our kind of public sessions. And then you can also either reach out to us at uh, OGI.training if you want to have a come do a private or a custom session. We also have a form on the learning sessions website. You can fill it out and say, like, we've done everything from like microaggressions to anti-bias to if you've got some funky situation, I love the like weird ones. <laughs> so I'm happy to come up with some sort of solution to to whatever training you do have. Otherwise, you can email us directly. Again, there are two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just look me up in the directory. I am there. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have seen the page there with your with your lovely bio. Yeah. And my <laughs> headshot that's from 2020, no, 2015. I need to get a new Ooh. headshot. Yeah, that was, my partner actually took that photo. It's a beautiful photo. It's when we first met. Yeah. Oh, and okay. I, I hated it at first <laughs> and clearly it grew on me because it's still my bio photo. <laughs> Are there other places outside of NYU that you'd be willing to connect with folks or p- places that you write for regularly? People could read um, your things? It has been a minute since I, I need to like start submitting materials. But um, if you want to follow my nail art Instagram, yeah. it's, uh, ooh, I hope I remember the handle. It's uh, at these are my one word underscore nails. Excellent. I nice. could not come up with the name. So I was like, <laughs> okay, these are my nails. And I post on that like once a week with uh, awesome. my manicure. With your yeah. new updated weekly manicure i've already planned out the barbie nails oh, i've got oh, tickets okay, to the barbie yes. movie gonna nice. do i've got a neon pink a pastel pink and a holographic pink okay, we're gonna do cool. a cute little geometric design mm-hmm. that sounds like fun yeah, yeah. i'm excited for it <laughs> thank That's you. i look forward yeah. to every weekend yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for being here um and i just want to say like i really appreciate as well like the vulnerability i connected with you in ways that you know, I don't think that I would have assumed. So it's just always nice. I love that, like, I get to have these conversations with people from all over the university and be able to connect on different things. You know, it's it's such a nice part of this whole podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 
1-800-799-7233 or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney-Amisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 